if you are creating something that is mimicking humans, you are engaging in deception. And that's not a good path to be on. But it is not a good path because of what happens when you deceive people and not because of this ridiculousness about, oh, but then with a little bit more text, maybe another order of magnitude more text, it'll suddenly become sentient and destroy the world. That's bullshit. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today, I want to get to the bottom of a bunch of unresolved paradoxes and somewhat historical quandaries that hover in and around AI or artificial intelligence what's called generalised AI, large language models such as ChatGPT, and the question that looms, will artificial intelligence kill us? And why is it that the very people who are making this AI technology are also the very same people who are telling us that their wares will possibly wipe us all out and presumably wipe out their own kids and grandkids and friends and neighbours? I mean, how can this be? There was that 2022 study, of course, that revealed more than half of AI technologists believe that there is at least a 10% chance that their products will create an existential catastrophe by the end of this century, so within 77 years. And I should say some of these technologists were saying it's a lot more than a 10% chance. How does someone keep fronting up to work when they believe this to be true? What cognitive self-bullshitting is going on here? It seems so counterintuitive. And all of this got even more perplexing when Elon Musk and Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, and many, many others came out earlier this year with calls for a pause to further AI development. They warned of the risk of extinction from AI and put it in the same camp as nuclear war and pandemics. Altman also presented to a congressional hearing suggesting that generative AI tools could go, I quote, quite wrong. He called for regulation of the very industry he is at the forefront of. And you've got to ask why. And you also have to ask, could there be something very suspect going on here? It sort of feels like putting arsonists in charge of the fire department. Now, my guest today is possibly the best person out there to answer these questions. Emily Bender is a professor at the University of Washington, where she's director of the Computational Linguistics Laboratory. And recently, she's become a voice a lot of people are listening to. She's regarded as a troublemaker, and she has a linguistic concept named after her called the Bender Rule. So Emily and a bunch of other AI experts, and I should point out that they are predominantly women, became internet famous in recent months for refusing to sign the various pause letters and for writing a bunch of papers that explain why we should, well, not believe the tech bro hype. These papers are known as the Octopus Paper and the Stochastic Parrot Paper, the latter having been cited close to 2,000 times since it was published. And on December 4, four days after ChatGPT was released, Altman tweeted, I'm a stochastic parrot and so are you. And we'll get to explaining all of this in our conversation. Now, when I discovered Emily's work and that of another female colleague, Timnit Gebru, who was dismissed from her job at Google for voicing her concerns, as have other women in AI ethics spaces, I wrote on Substack, I've decided I quite like Emily Bender. And a few of you commented that you did too and suggested that I invite her to come chat here on Wild. So voila. This episode requires a few background explainers for anyone a bit new to this very hot topic. If you've been following things here on Wild, you would know that there is an interconnected world out there of what are termed tech bros. And I use the term a lot for shorthand myself. Male tech whizzes who are dominating a lot of curious and I could say worrying conversations. I track the interconnections on my Substack, and I'll include a link in the show notes if you'd like to read some extra detail in that post. So the AI debate and AI's development and the pause movement is happening in parallel with innovation and discussions pertaining to things like pronatalism, which is a form of human genetics geared at creating a superior race who can solve the complex issues that we face today. Also relating to transhumanism. And you will recall I had transhumanist academic Elise Bowen on Wild several months back to explain this idea of creating an upgraded version of humans. And it's also connected with the long-termist movement, 
and you'll recall, I had chief long-termist Holden Konofsky on here as well. The long-termist movement fuels the Future of Life Institute, which, here we go, initiated the pause letter I mentioned earlier, and its board is stacked with a bunch of rich tech bros, including Elon Musk. All of the above is also intertwined with the effective altruism movement, the lead voice being William McCaskill, who I also interviewed here on Wild, and around and around this close-knit circle goes. It's hard to fathom how it does all fit together, but in this conversation with Emily, I will try to unpack it a little, or at least explain the motivations behind the various people who are at the nucleus of all of these movements. It's important stuff to know, and I think most of us here are deeply worried that there does not seem to be an ethical or moral conversation happening around, well, all of it. Emily, I'm glad to say, is leading a very robust one. Welcome to Wild. It's really great to have you here chatting to us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Look, I might get you to explain a few basics in this whole fast-moving arena. A lot of people, I think, a lot of people listening to this podcast got exposed to the potential risks of AI and this idea that, hey, it might wipe us out like in the sci-fi fiction. When the large language model chat GPT landed at the end of 2022. It was just before Christmas and I remember going to a dinner party where I was talking to people about AI and the risks of it and they were like looking at me kind of with the same expression they gave me when I started talking about the climate crisis about five, six, seven years ago, which is to say disbelieving. Anyway, over Christmas, chat GPT landed. Everyone played around with it and then suddenly everyone got absolutely freaked out I was wondering if you could explain what ChatGPT actually is and why suddenly it became such a big deal, went from no awareness to, oh, my God, the robots robots are going to come and take us down. Yeah. All right. So ChatGPT, you already used the phrase, is a large language model. And I've heard people say it's actually better to call that a large corpus model. A corpus is a collection of text. So what ChatGPT is at base is a very good model of a very large corpus of training data. It's fundamental task when it was developed, when it was trained, was to output probability distributions over words. Which word is most likely to come next and then second most likely, etc., given all of the words that has been input so far. And so its sole purpose is to generate plausible looking text, not just in English. There's a bunch of other languages in the training data. It's not any old language in the world, though, and it's definitely more English than anything else. And unlike previous large language models or large corpus models, a lot of that training data was actually conversation. So when OpenAI created ChatGPT, they took the kinds of large collections of text that were being used already and then created a whole bunch of conversational data so that ChatGPT appears more conversational. It appears that you can have a conversation with it, which might be what you're experiencing when you input text into it. But all that it's doing is coming up with probability distributions over what's a likely word to come next, and then choosing according to those probabilities. There's a little bit more training in there, but that's like the the basics of it. What happened in the very end of November 2022 was that OpenAI set this up on the web where many people could access it very conveniently. So the technology is not fundamentally different from what was available in the couple of years preceding, but the availability of it certainly changed the public experience. And OpenAI did something brilliant in terms of marketing, which was it got a million people to go cherry pick fun examples out of this and share those examples. So we were flooded with look at these cool things it can do, look how smart it is, and sometimes look how evil it is or look how ridiculously bad it is. But nobody was posting the sort of meh, well, that wasn't super exciting type outputs. Yeah, I noticed that. I think they also got some kind of very overzealous, excited tech writers to play around with it in the early days. And so they were doing all these things like, you know, getting the technology to write article in their style but with Shakespearean overtones or whatever it might be and it was fun it it, it was certainly novel but then of course I think a few of us worked out well that's as far as it goes until and this is the really important bit 
until in early 2023, we started getting these calls for a pause. And there was this sort of pause movement. There's been several key moments in the last, I'm guessing, six months or so. Perhaps you could talk us through this this pause movement, these people that came out calling, I don't know who they were calling on per se, for a a sort of a stop, a, a, a soft pause on any further technological advancement. Talk us through it, Emily. Yeah. So there was a, two major moments that I observed. The first was the, the so-called AI pause letter, which basically expressed a bunch of fear about what these large language models might do, which was very much grounded in unrealistic interpretations of what the technology is, which is strange given that it's coming from some of these same people who are making the technology. Super strange. And we'll break that down in a moment because, yeah, a lot of people are scratching their heads. Right. So this fear-mongering grounded in unrealistic expectations of what this technology can do and also very vague, basically saying, you know, we're calling for a six-month pause in the training of models that are more powerful than, and I think it was GPT-4 was the marker that they were using, and GPT-4 is something in OpenAI's series of these things. And of course, more powerful than is undefined. Like, what does that mean? And then what's supposed to happen in those six months? And The thing that's really troubling to me about this is there's a whole bunch of harm being done in the name of AI. And these calls for pausing the development because the AI is going to become sentient and take over the world, et cetera, is basically saying, look over there, a monster to distract the policymakers and the public at large from the harm that's being done in the real world. Yeah, and my understanding is that the people who were signing this pause letter, these were the people developing the technology, right, that apparently, and this is their words because, you know, they all came out and spoke about it, is as dangerous to the human species as nuclear war. I think they were Sam Altman's words, the the CEO of ChatGPT or at least OpenAI. And, of course, the pause letter was founded by the Future of Life Institute that came from them, which has on its board none other than... Elon Musk. And Elon Musk was at the forefront of this pause movement. So yeah, we'll get to why they did this and why it's so counterintuitive. But yes, tell us what the second part, the second chapter in this pause movement was. Um, So the second chapter was this 22 word statement that came out. And we could look up the exact phrasing of it because it's only 22 words. And it basically was another, but both of these were set up as like petitions that they wanted to get lots and lots of people to sign to sort of show how important it was, I guess. Um, and the 22 word statement was likening the risks from AI as societal scale and akin to, I think they had nuclear war and pandemics were the other two things. And of course, around this time, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, also presented at a congressional hearing suggesting that these generative AI tools, and he called them generative AI tools, and I don't know that ChatGPT is, could all go very, very wrong. And of course, I think he had a dinner beforehand and all these senators came out feeling very excited about it, saying we need to be listening to this Sam Altman guy. So that added to it as well. And it made headlines around the world. And And as I say, we were kind of feeling that this feels all super counterintuitive. And so you and a bunch of AI ethicists, and this also feels counterintuitive, came out and opposed the pause letter and this whole movement. And you wrote your own paper or response to it. And I'd love you to explain the gist of your beef with this pause movement. And we'll break it down a bit. I think I've got this right. There seems to be two aspects to it. First of all, that these large language models are just not that dangerous. The second part of it is that there are way more dangerous threats at play, which the pause hoo-ha is distracting us from. So I'll get you to talk through each of these in turn. And maybe let's start with the first, that LLMs, large language models, are just not that freaky. Right. They're not, they're not freaky. They can be used by bad actors to cause harm, for sure. Right. So there's all kinds of harms that we can talk about to do with the output of large language models, including pollution of the information ecosystem, including the energy and water intensive aspects of them. So it it costs a lot in terms of carbon and in terms of water to create these things and to use them. So they're not harmless, but 
just like any other technology, the harm comes from people using them. And the notion that they are going to gain sentience and then take over the world and wipe out humanity is, is just a fantasy. And you can see it in the AI pause letter. So the response that you're talking about is something that uh, we put together. So it's the title is Statement from the Listed Authors of the Stochastic Parrots Paper on the AI Pause Letter. And it's from four of us. So Dr. Timit Gebru, me, Dr. Angelina McMillan-Major, and Dr. Margaret Mitchell. And so we wrote a response to the pause letter. So back in 2020, Dr. Timit Gebru approached me actually through Twitter DMs asking if I knew of any papers sort of gathering together the possible dangers of going for ever larger language models. And I wrote back, so on these Twitter DMs, I said, hmm, no, actually, I don't know of any papers about this. You know, why do you want this? And she said, well, people here, she was at Google at the time, seem to be in this like race for ever bigger and bigger. And I would like to be able to just sort of give them the full catalog of things they should be thinking about before they go barreling down that road. And I said, well, I don't have paper like that. I don't know of any that anyone else has written, but here are the five or six things that I can think of. And the next day I wrote back and I said, hey, that looks like a paper outline. Would you like to write this paper? And, you know, neither of us had counted on writing another paper that month, but we were excited about the idea. And so I brought Angelina McMillan Major on. She was my PhD student at the time. Dr. Gebru brought on Dr. Mitchell and some other people from their team at Google. And we put together this paper that was sort of a survey of the risks of large language models, which should be noted at the time were primarily used not to generate synthetic media, but as components of other systems. And I can talk some more about what that distinction is. But yeah, OpenAI was out there with GPT-3 and that was doing synthetic text, but nobody was really talking about using that for practical purposes. And it was sort of a, a parlor trick. So why don't you explain what a stochastic parrot is? So stochastic parrots is this metaphor that I came up with to succinctly describe what's going on with a large language model, because I had already been arguing with people largely on Twitter who wanted to claim that these large language models were actually understanding text. My training is in linguistics. I'm a linguist, so I'm really interested in how language works. And one of the things about language is that it is a system of signs, meaning that there's always both the form and the meaning, and they're not the same thing. You might think, because we interpret language so reflexively, that when you look at a bunch of words on a page, the meaning is right there but it's not. The meaning is what you are recreating based on your knowledge of the linguistic system that those words belong to and your knowledge of where you think the author is coming from. So form and meaning are different. The large language models are trained only on form. Their task is probability distribution over the next word, probability distribution over the next word based on just the form of the words. So what stochastic parrots means, and I have to say this is no shade on actual parrots who are probably quite intelligent creatures. I'm using here the English verb to parrot, that is to repeat back mindlessly without understanding. So a stochastic parrot is a system for haphazardly stitching together bits of its training data according to probability distributions and with no understanding of what it's saying. So that's the phrase stochastic parrots. It became a big deal because Google fired my co-authors over it. Indeed. Timnick famously was lost her job, lost her job, was dismissed. I think mm. they deny firing her, but she says otherwise. And of course, Sam Altman has used the phrase when ChatGPT first came out, incorrectly, of course, but it has certainly got around and the paper has been cited, I think, over 2,000 times, if I got that right. That sounds like the numbers I'm seeing, yeah. Yeah. Now, while you're there, you also wrote another seminal paper, and it's roughly called the octopus paper. But I found the way that you used an octopus sort of translating Morse code underwater as a really good way to explain exactly what you've just explained. Yeah. So the octopus thought experiment is part of a paper that I wrote together with Alexander Kohler. And this very much came out of the same frustration. I was constantly arguing with people on Twitter about whether or not these things understand. And my position is, no, they don't. So Alexander and I said, let's just write the academic paper about this and that'll settle things, which of course it didn't. But 
we came up with this thought experiment. So, all right, so the scenario is this. You've got two humans, A and B, and they've become stranded on some desert islands, and they discover that they're not the first people to have been there, and some previous inhabitants have installed a telegraph cable that goes between the two of them. And A and B are speakers of English, and when they figure this out, they remind themselves of how Morse code works, or maybe they already knew because they were that kind of nerd, and they, they entertain themselves by communicating over this telegraph cable in Morse code. Then along comes down at the bottom of the ocean, this deep sea octopus who is posited to be intelligent and starts listening in to the dots and dashes going across this cable. And the octopus, because it's hyper intelligent, is able to come up with a very good sense of the patterns of dots and dashes and eventually decides to cut the cable and start replying to A as if it were B. So, you know, we think of, okay, how would this go? And it's like, okay, maybe A says something like, oh, what a beautiful sunset. And B might have sent back something like, yeah, it reminds me of lava lamps. So, oh, the octopus does the dots and dashes for, yeah, it reminds me of lava lamps. But of course, the octopus has no idea what a lava lamp is or what a sunset is or that, you know, A has even said something meaningful. It's just, here's the pattern. So the pattern comes back. And then our next example was A puts together some instructions for doing a coconut catapult and sends them excitedly over to B. And of course, O, again, has no idea. And even if it did, would not be in any position to actually create a coconut catapult underwater. Ordinarily, B probably would have tried and then sent back some feedback, or B might have sent something like, oh, cool, good idea. And so O can send either of those things because they can just sort of send what would likely have come next from A's input. And then our third scenario, because this is a thought experiment and you can have things like spherical cows and magically appearing bears, all of a sudden there's a bear on A's island. And A sends back, oh no, I'm being attacked by a bear. All I have is this stick. What should I do? And at that point, if sort of tongue in cheek, we say that's when O would fail the Turing test if A actually lived to notice. Because there's nothing helpful that O can send back. The bear scenario hasn't occurred in the training data. There's no patterns for O to fall back on. And the whole point here is that all that O has had access to is the dots and dashes and not the actual experience of communicating with A. And so it can't learn the language. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of explaining to people how these LLMs work. It's it's really working with prediction of what, what word will come next based on sort of just sifting through large amounts of examples that exist on the internet already. But of course, we know that there have been examples and in the last sort of six months or so, the Google engineer came out saying that Google's chatbot was sentient and got completely freaked out by it. And, you know, it leads to, I guess, a whole bunch of repercussions, whether or not it is sentient or not, is is not the point. It's the fact that it's sort of crossing what I think you and others call the bright line in AI ethics, which is where there's a sort of an obscuring of that line that's sort of between human and, and, and what is actually technology that leaves us confused and it can unravel society. There's also been the example, I think, in the New York Times, which I followed quite closely because I found it fascinating, where the tech reporter, I think Kevin Roos was his name, he had that conversation with Bing, the chatbot on Bing, and this, this chatbot turned into a sort of a bunny-boiling lover. It, it got absolutely insane. And I think he wrote, Kevin Roos wrote, the AI that has been built into Bing is not ready for human contact, or maybe we humans are not ready for it. The version I encountered seemed more like a moody, manic, depressive teenager who had been trapped against its will inside a second-rate search engine. What do you make of these experiences that people are having where there is this sense, my God, it almost feels sentient? So all of that is on our side, that when the when the output of these systems seems to make sense, it's because we're making sense of it. And we honestly can't help ourselves. We are wired to, to connect, to communicate. And once we have acquired a linguistic system, we can't force ourselves to not interpret it, right? If someone is talking to you and you don't want to hear what they have to say, you actually have to like, you know, put your hands over your ears, la, 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 I can't hear you. Because if you can hear them, you understand it. It, it is reflexive and immediate. And importantly, the way we do that is actually by imagining the mind behind the words. That is how we do it. So 
think I mentioned before that you might think that the meaning is in the form, but the form is just a really rich contextual cue to what the person is trying to communicate. And so if I say to you something about, so something that I would like to say is that I'm very, very frustrated whenever reporters talk about these things in anthropomorphic terms, you're going to start making guesses as to what's coming next. And your listeners probably are too. Okay, so these reporters, who does that refer to? Well, we've got Kevin Roos in the context. We've got whoever was reporting on Blake Lemoyne's story. That's the Google engineer. That, by the way, was 2022. So that's a while back now. It was, it was June of 2022. And so... When I say these reporters, because we're all English speakers here, if you're listening to this podcast without it being in translation, you're an English speaker, you know what these is used conventionally to mean, you know what reporter is used conventionally to mean. And so the question is, who might Emily be using those words to refer to? Well, what's in the common ground? What's in the context already? And in order to do that, you have to think about subconsciously very, very quickly, what is it that we've already established that you know that I know that you know that I know, et cetera. So all of that happens reflexively and really, really fast, and it involves imagining another mind that you're interacting with. Yes. So, of course, when we're having to do that, and that's what we do when we're conversing, we do it naturally, as you say, when we're listening to a chatbot, we automatically imagine the mind behind it. And so what you're saying, I'm guessing, is that that we kind of construct this notion of it being a sentient being. We treat the chatbot as though it's a sentient being and we try to predict what it's going to think and say and we do the same things to a chatbot as we do to a human in a conversation. And so we convince ourselves it's sentient. Exactly. And in order to understand the text, which we are driven to do, we have to do that. And then it's an extra step to say, oh, but I actually know that that's not from a thinking entity. It's just a system that's been trained to come up with the probability distributions over what's the likely next word. Right. And that's a mouthful, but I'm working really hard not to anthropomorphize it. (laughs) Yes, I I know. And I keep doing that because it's my way of kind of trying to understand what you're saying. But I get your point, right? We are making these machines into sort of human like entities because that's what we do when we're having conversations. What I'm wondering, though, Emily, is whether you can answer this one because I think the, the question begs. Is it possible that Sam Altman and Elon Musk and the rest of the the tech bro crew could be right down the track? Could these LLMs or even just could AI generally develop to a point where they are either sentient or close to sentient and we do experience what they call a singularity? Is it at all possible, whether it's LLMs or AI more generally? So I'm going to say it is definitely not possible with language models. And I want to give a precise definition of language model to sort of underscore that. In terms of could anyone at any point in the future build an artificial mind that, you know, has a sense of self that has its own goals, etc.? You know, the world's a big place. The universe is a big place. I guess I can't say for sure that that's never going to happen. The question I would ask is, what do you want that for? Why are you building that? Like, what's it meant for? Because we still have human agency in this. It's not going to happen accidentally by feeding more and more text into a large language model. So these systems look to us like they're sentient because of the way we interpret things. And it's worth keeping in mind that up until the last couple of years, if we encountered text, that text with a very few exceptions that I can try to paint for you, came from some person or group of people who decided to write it down and say something with it. That has always been true. And if you think about the most fundamental use of language, which is face-to-face spoken language or sign language, that's always been another mind that is communicating with us. Always, always, always. And now we're in this weird moment where we can see very fluent, very plausible seeming text that's output from these synthetic text extruding machines. That is something that we need to adapt to and we need to, you know, at the level of the media, as consumers in regulation, to think about what it means to have plausible synthetic text. Now, I said there's a couple of exceptions where we've encountered this before. And one of my favorite examples is the Magic 8-Ball toy. Do you remember that one? Is that part of your experience? Yeah. So this is not everybody's experience, yeah, but it was a a big plastic ball shaped like a billiard ball, the number eight, and it had a window on one side and some liquid in the middle. And then inside of that, there was a die that had some answers to it. And the answers would be something like unclear, ask again later, which could work for any question, but also things like signs point to yes. And 
what quickly became clear when you were playing with it is that if you didn't ask it yes, no questions, the game didn't work, right? What should I have for lunch? Signs point to yes. It's just ridiculous. And so as people using the game, we learned to shape the question we asked it so that we could make sense of the answer. And the same thing is happening when we interact with one of these synthetic text extruding machines. If we want to pretend we're having a conversation with it, we are throwing it input that we are conceiving of as questions. So we're shaping it as a question and then we're taking its response as an answer when that's not what it's doing. So these systems, no matter how much more text you put in, they, they will get more convincing. And this is why we call it a bright line in AI ethics is that if you are creating something that is mimicking humans, you are engaging in deception. And that's not a good path to be on, but it is not a good path because of the, what happens when you deceive people and not because of this ridiculousness about, oh, but then with a little bit more text, you know, maybe another order of magnitude more text, it'll suddenly become sentient and destroy the world. That's bullshit. And this does seem to be the central thesis behind the tech bros who are both building the stuff and then telling us how dangerous it is, is that, you know, we just need more time. So to fix the problem that we've created, we just need to actually make it even more sophisticated. We need to do more of the same thing that caused the problem in the first place. And we're already seeing, and in fact, these tech bros point to these examples, that things have gone wrong. And some examples that, you know, I, I recall is I think at the Washington Post, a journalist decided to test one of these models and got this chatbot to list lawyers who had sexually harassed someone. Anyway, a whole bunch of lawyers came up. One of them, I think, the journalist knew and reached out to them and said, do you know about this? And it turns out that the citation that was used by this LLM, it may have been ChatGPT, I don't know, was in fact a Washington Post article. But it was bullshit. It was completely bullshit. This technology had made it up. You've also got the example, quite a well-known one, the American National Eating Disorders Association fired a whole heap of helpline workers, replacing them with chatbots. Now, these chatbots went on to actively encourage disordered eating behaviours in the people that were ringing for help because it was literally predicting the text that it had been trained on, which exists on the internet, which of course encourages <laughs> disordered eating. This kind of brings us to the second part of, I guess, your response to the pause letter. And the argument of, is that, okay, there might be some issues with these language models, but there are moral issues that surround all of this that are already happening. They're already with us. And that's what you're really, really concerned about is that while ever we're talking hype, while ever we're creating a hype that can encourage this idea of progressing the technology further rather than really pausing it, we're ignoring the fundamental ethical issues. Can you talk us through what some of these ethical issues are. And I know there's a lot and I encourage everyone to read your various papers and I'll put the links in the show notes because you do explain it super, super well, but I'm sure you'll be able to explain it to us here also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. So I already mentioned the environmental impact of this technology. Um, and one of the things we talk about in the Stochastic Parrots paper so we, we refer to the existing literature on the environmental impact, and we didn't do a new study of that ourselves, but what we brought in was the environmental racism angle. So if you think about all of this effort that's going in to creating ever larger language models with their dubious benefits, to the extent that they're benefits, those benefits are going to go to the most well-off in society and not the people who are going to be bearing the first and worst impacts of the climate catastrophe. So there's the climate part of it. Number one. Number two is the labor exploitation underlying it. So in order to get these very large training data sets, I think they've gotten to a size now where you actually can't get that big with ethical data collection practices. And by ethical data collection practices, I mean, and Dr. Margaret Mitchell gave me these words, it's consent, credit, and compensation. So you are taking people's data with their consent, you are giving them credit if they want it for what they have created, and you are compensating them for their work. That's not what's happened. Not by a long shot, right? This is a big part of the issue, right? We actually don't know where this information is coming from because there hasn't been transparency. And we'll get to that in a moment. But this is a really fundamental point. 
nobody is actually coming clean on where this information is being derived from. And it's obviously being pilfered. And just to sort of probably jump a little bit of a, a, a little bit ahead here, it's being pilfered from the internet. And as we know, the internet is mostly dominated, the information on there is mostly dominated by white people, men, and wealthy people. And also the internet, as we all know, attracts racists, sexists, homophobes, neo-Nazis. I mean, it's rife with all of this. This is the data set that these models are being built on. So of course, what do you know? It spits out racist, homophobic content. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. And that actually brings us to the second part of the worker exploitation here. So we've got the massive data theft, and then that data set has all of this garbage in it. And even if you tried to make a cleaner version, you are still going to have underlying prejudices, even if you went for something where you tried to steer clear of the neo-Nazi sites and porn as input, right? It's, it is pervasive. I was, but I was still on the, on the labor exploitation part. So we've got the data theft, and then there's this problem of, okay, how do you clean it up? And the way that they've cleaned it up for ChatGPT is by getting a lot of people to label a lot of really terrible output. And those people are the, the ones that we know about anyway, were employed by this uh, contracting company called Sama, which is based in Kenya, or I think the workers are in Kenya and the, the company I think is between Silicon Valley in California and Kenya. And they spent hours each day looking at really traumatic output. So we're talking child abuse, we're talking violence, we're talking, you know, rape, right? And as I understand it, their job was not only to label it as, you know, bad or not, but what kind of a bad. So they actually had to really engage the output. And this terribly traumatic labor really impacted these people psychologically. So there's some nice, well, I should say very well done reporting on this by Billy Perigo in Time Magazine and Karen Howe in the Wall Street Journal and others. Those are the ones I know off the top of my head. It exposes another ethical element to this. And you're talking about yeah. open AI here from what I gather. They do say that they've got this these sort of checks and balances going on. But as you say, it's this ghost labour in a far-flung country where they're earning, and I think I have this right, $2 an hour? Yeah, um, to do this really horrible work. Yeah, and without sufficient supports, right? That the the workers who eventually were comfortable to speak out the the Wall Street Journal podcast that Karen Howe put together. She actually went there and interviewed some of these people, and their experiences are horrific. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the helpline to call if you're feeling bad. Kind of support, like 
really, really insufficient. And that's what it takes so that when anybody else walks up to ChatGPT, they are much less likely to see that output. So that is that is real harm going on right now. You also point to a two-tiered world more broadly, and I think this is a really important one to to talk about. These tech bros like to say that the positive aspects of where this technology can take us is that it can fix holes in the system, like the lack of teachers, particularly in the US. You know, the fact that a lot of people in the US don't have access to healthcare, you know, so the, you know, these various bots can be created that can point people to health information. Legal aid as well. I know that there's a lot of discussion and reports about how chat GPT and other and other language models can can take the place of lawyers and, and cut costs for low-income people. But your point is, well, that's actually going to create even more inequity in the world. So the poor will have have access to this very deficient and problematic AI and the well-to-do will actually be the only ones able to hire the actual humans to do the work that is required, the subtle work, the getting behind the mind of work. And I think that's really important. And of course, it's not as sexy, is it, as saying, hey, our technology is so sophisticated, it, it might destroy us all. It's it's not something that people are wanting to talk about. And it actually reminds me, Emily, I know that the day that Sam Altman presented to, to that congressional hearing, there was another hearing going on elsewhere in Washington that was discussing these very issues. And it didn't make the news at all because, of course, the we're all going to die from my robots headlines took over. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think is behind that is that we're all going to die from these robots, challenges nobody's privilege, right? Whereas your ability to play with ChatGPT that seems like so much fun relies on people's works being stolen, relies on exploiting these workers in Kenya, basically does challenge privilege. So, well, maybe I am actually complicit in this if I partake. And so I think that it is much easier for anybody with privilege to orient towards the story of we're all going to die because they don't have to deal, we don't have to deal with our own privilege in that. I guess in some ways it brings us to why the hell are they doing this? Why did Sam Altman et al, why did they all come out and talk about a pause? Was it just to create the hype, to create hype around their products? And what will hype do for them? Yeah. So, you know, I can't speak to anyone's own internal motivations because they haven't told me, but it looks to me like it is that the hype is, or the, this sort of negative hype is beneficial to them in a couple of ways. One is it makes their technology look super powerful, which helps to sell it. Right. But another is it distracts policymakers from the harms that they're currently engaging in. Right. So please come regulate us, but only about this this weird science fiction thing about things becoming too powerful. Please don't ask us to tell you about our training data. Please don't ask us to tell you about our labor practices, etc. Because I want everybody focused on this boogeyman that I'm making up. Th- those are the benefits that I see to them. If it was calculated or not, you know, can't speak to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's another part to the hype that I see and it's sort of another bunch of tech bros, often the same ones, saying, oh, yes, we need the pause. Oh, but we still need to go ahead with this. Like, So, you know, it does beg, well, if you need a pause, why are you doing it at all? And they kind of conveniently don't answer that question. They move straight to, well, if we don't do it, China will. So we've got to do it, right? And I don't know if you've watched Oppenheimer, the movie. I mean, you you know yet, no. my storyline, of course. Okay, yeah. so, I mean, the same justification was very much highlighted in the film and it's a big part of the development of, of those nuclear assets was at the time, you know, if we don't do it, the Nazis or, or Russia will beat us to it and so it creates this zero-sum race to the bottom. I'd love you to comment on that side of things, this idea that, well, yeah, okay, we might be saying pause but we still got to do it because otherwise China will. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, let's think for a moment about the inherent xenophobia in Ono China, which is appalling. Secondly, the the comparison to nuclear weapons suggests that AI is being conceived of as a weapon or that this automation is being conceived of as a weapon. The same time, you've got like this open eye will talk about we've got to build it fast because we've got to build the good one before anyone builds the bad one. But there's no story about how having a benevolent AI is going to protect us from a malevolent one. Like that's just 
part of the part of the faith, I guess. And then I heard a very wise remark somewhere, and I wish that I had held on to the author of this, which is the full-on race towards so-called AI, which, you know, this conception that there's a straight and narrow path that we're on and there's AI at the end of it. And it's just a question of who gets there faster. And what the path entails is gathering ever larger data sets. So more surveillance, less privacy, more labor exploitation. And this wise commentator basically said, how is it that we win out in terms of like being a liberal democracy against an authoritarian state by doing more surveillance, less privacy, more label exploitation. That doesn't make any sense, right? And the other point here, I would imagine, Emily, that I'm sure you have explored is that, yes, okay, is is this AI leading us to this technology that is meant to be saving us from, you know, this horrible doomsday with China? I don't know. The point is, there's never been due scope applied to this technology. What, like, what is it for? And and I guess a lot of people do fall into the trap of thinking that it could take over because it is a language model and everything involves language. And so we kind of think that these chatbots, etc., these programs could eventually take over. But I think you and Timnit make the point often, like, what is the scope of all of this? And that points to, I think, one of the really key, I guess, arguments that you make at the end of all of this is that we need transparency. Rather than a pause, what we should be doing is demanding transparency. And I'm sure a lot of listeners would be surprised to hear that Google, for instance, hasn't told us in any detail what data the program scrapes from. You know, it it seems to be from the web, but there seems to be limited or no quality control. And that, of course, brings us to the point that, you know, artists, writers, musicians, etc., having their work used for this, what is a very much a commercial product. Yeah, absolutely. Transparency is so key on so many levels. In August of this year, the US Federal Trade Commission came out with another wonderful blog post asserting that it could be an issue of deceptive trade practices if companies don't disclose whether or not there's copyrighted material inside their models. Because if they sell a model that's built on copyrighted material and then somebody else is, u- is using it, that somebody else might be infringing copyright. So that is interesting to see. So we need transparency just around sort of intellectual property, but we also need transparency so that we can decide, is this something that is appropriate to my use case? And that is what we were doing with the data set and model documentation research starting in about 2017. And this was fun. It was one of these moments of scientific convergence where a whole bunch of groups sort of said, oh, okay, we're starting to see the biases coming out of these systems. We can see how that's going to be a problem. What's the first step to mitigating those biases? Well, it's knowing what goes in. And so here's some structured ways of doing data set documentation. I was working on that. Timnit Gebru was working on that. Meg Mitchell was working on that. And several others sort of independently. And then we found each other. And that was that was cool to be a part of. So we need that transparency. We need transparency of the fact of synthetic media. So if you think about how plausible this stuff looks now, when you encounter some information on the web, how do you know if it is something that was authored by a person who has accountability for it versus, you know, someone turned on the tap for the synthetic media spill. That's a big problem. And then there's one more thing I wanted to bring up about transparency, which is without the training data, all of these claims of so-called emergent capabilities, oh, look, I can't believe GPT-4 can do this thing we didn't train it to do, are completely hollow because we don't know what's in the training data. And I'm reminded of the dictum that a magician never explains their magic tricks. So OpenAI very much prefers that we can't see what's in the training data so that their system looks like magic. Yeah, and something that just occurred to me in listening to you speak is that when people engage with, say, ChatGPT, and of course you have to pay to do that, to, to have access to it, you are essentially creating more and more content for them content which they then use and charge more people to access. So it's this insane logic that we're engaged in where we're actually paying to give them our content. That question I would imagine also needs to be addressed as well as accountability. I know you, you have written about this and the question I guess that comes up 
you know, if we were to make these big multinational companies accountable for the repercussions of their technology, it would be a very different situation, wouldn't wouldn't it? I mean, how would the world be if OpenAI and Google and Microsoft were actually accountable for the output of these machines? Who would want to be accountable for the randomness of it all? That, I would imagine, would put some stop gaps on, on some insanity going on. Absolutely. So could you imagine, you know, we have medical malpractice coming out, right? In terms of the eating disorders hotline you talked about before that was actively encouraging disordered eating, you know, who's responsible for that? Well, the the hotline shut down that chatbot in a hurry. I think it was only up for a few days. It took somebody else pointing it out and initially the hotline denied it. And then the person's like, here's the screen caps, like this is real. And they did shut it down. So, you know, they took liability there. But if you think about it, why isn't OpenAI responsible when ChatGPT, if, if that's the one where the lawyer story came from, outputs what's effectively liable, right? Who is accountable? And I would love to see it where people who create these models are accountable for their output. And you're absolutely right. Then that would, that would close the tap, I think, on the synthetic mm. media spill. And one of the narratives that's out there that the tech companies like to, to push is, oh, technology is moving too fast. The regulators can't possibly keep up. And I really, whenever I get a chance to talk to regulators, like to encourage them to resist that narrative and to realize that their job is to protect rights and rights aren't changing that fast. There's some changes that we need for rights. That tends to be slow, right? And that's all there. But, you know, in this context, the OpenAI's terms of use for ChatGPT are remarkable. So the last time I checked it was August and they still hadn't changed this, where it says defines content. So you may provide input to the services, input, and receive output generated and returned by the services based on that input, output. Input and output are collectively content. And then blah, 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 there's more to this paragraph. You are responsible for content, including for ensuring that it does not violate any applicable law or these terms. So they're basically saying it's on the user to make sure that the output from the system that the user did not create doesn't conflict with laws. Wow. Gosh, I, I wonder how many people have read that fine print before, you know, asking asking ChatGPT to, to finish an assignment for them. Yeah, that's very telling, isn't it? And and it's it, it's at that juncture that I think we can probably stop this AI from eating us up <laughs> because as soon as you throw it back onto the creators, I suspect things will probably change quite dramatically. To that end, I'm wondering, Emily, People listening to this who might be feeling some relief, actually, that things aren't as bad as, well, at least they're not as removed. They're not completely out of hand. They remain in our hands because we can still demand ethical uh, considerations in and around all of this. But what should we be following? What other sort of themes, news items, advances should we be following? Has the pause movement kind of disappeared? Like, is this six-month pause going to happen? Have they all made their point? They've created the hype. They've got extra investment dollars. They've got more people trying it out because they're so fascinated by this existential risk. Did it do its job and it's they're moving on to something else? What do we need to be alive to? Yeah. So, I doubt that the people who are really behind the pause letter are changing their tune or have changed how they're thinking about things. They might not be calling for a pause anymore, but there's certainly still AI doomers out there who are going around thinking that they're blowing the whistle or raising an alarm when in fact what they're doing is they're distracting from the real harms that are going on. I think that one thing that we can always do that's always beneficial is to keep the people in the frame. So when we are looking at this so-called AI technology, we can ask, okay, who created this and what did they created it for? Who's benefiting from it? Whose labor is represented here? And how were those workers treated in the process of doing this? Who is this being used on and how are they being harmed by it? And who's selling it and why? So whenever anyone's talking about AI and making the AI, in scare quotes, the agent of something, that's a cue to go in and say, no, hold on. That's just technology. Technology is a tool. Who's using the tool and to what end and who's being harmed by that? And if we keep focusing that way and then orient towards, for example, journalism that takes that view, I think we'll end up much better informed. 
Mm. I mean, really what you are talking about are the ethical questions. And I find it really interesting that these these tech bros behind the pause movement have distanced themselves from ethics and they actually call them, is it is it AI safety? Yeah. It's sort of an AI safety movement with safety being really quite different to the ethics. And I guess I've got to ask, the people who wrote the various papers you were involved in were women. Are the bulk of people resisting the pause movement who are putting up ethical questions, do they tend to be women? The group of people who are not only resisting the pause movement, but actually resisting the actual harms and sort of the all-out headlong rush into let's just grab more data and exploit more workers and automate more processes tend to be far more diverse than um, the people who work in computer science as a whole. And I think what's going on there is that the more likely you are to have experienced the short end of a system of oppression, the easier it is to see other systems of oppression in operation and to see the urgency in resisting them. Also, the people who are resisting this stuff, they're the ones not represented in the content being spat out by these AI models, which is predominantly, as we talked about earlier, white, male, wealthy. So yes, what you're saying is it's not necessarily women, but it's it tends not to be white, wealthy men who are resisting this pause. The final question I, I really want to ask, because the conversation on WILD has covered off a bunch of topics which all kind of loop in, come to a bit of a head with this chat GPT, large language model stuff that we're you know very much embroiled in at the moment. Things such as transhumanism, long-termism, We've touched on effective altruism and had William McCaskill on as a guest. And it's been really interesting. I've sort of ventured into these topics, you know, with a lot of interest, really wondering what they're about and where they could head. And and quite often there is a very altruistic slant to what these movements say they're about. But what's really bizarre, and this is another one of these strange kind of I don't know, cognitive dissonant aspects to this space is that there's this kind of Venn diagram where all of these disparate kind of movements overlap. So the Future of Life Institute, as we mentioned before, that put out this pause letter and got all these people to sign it, has Elon Musk on the board, but that it's an effective, it's effectively a long-termist organization who are very closely linked to the transhumanist movement and effective altruism. What's going on there? Like the average person must be listening to this going, how do these dots connect? Yeah, yeah. So I think a great source for connecting the dots is the work of, again, Tanit Gebru and Emil Torres, um, who have coined the term Tesgrill or the Tesgrill bundle of ideologies. And they have traced... Can you yeah, spell out that, yeah. that, 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 that for us? It's T-E-S-C-R-E-A-L. Okay, in order. Transhumanism extropianism, singularitarianism, cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and long-termism. And all right, so all the things. All the things. And the reason they bundle these together is that they actually have a lot of overlap in terms of the people, you know, working on them as um, philosophy, a lot of overlap in terms of shared assumptions, and a whole bunch of it goes back to early and then not so early work in eugenics. So it is, it is really rotten at its core. Some of the surface is very shiny and exciting. You know, the if you think about the phrase effective altruism, it's like, yes, we want to do good and do good in a way that's effective. But doing good in a way that's effective still has this notion that the do-gooders are the ones who know how to make the best decisions for the people who are actually in need. So my experience of discussions of effective altruism is that it takes the space that should be about building community and making connections and building trust and replaces it with this sort of very macho and cold notion of optimization. And we've seen it all kind of collapse in a bit of a heap because, of course, William McCaskill coached Sam Bankman-Fried to earn these billions of dollars, which, you know, he was meant to then give effectively and altruistically to these, you know, I don't know, people in Africa who needed malaria nets. And that turned out to be quite the fraud, as anyone who follows the news would, would know. Yeah, yeah. And so you see the sort of the traces of these movements in a lot of the more respectably presented things. So for example, the AI pause letter, this is kind of hilarious, has the sentence, 
AI research and development should be focused on making today's powerful state-of-the-art systems more accurate, safe, interpretable, transparent, robust. All of those are unobjectionable. Aligned, that's one of those keywords for the AI is going to do its own thing and we have to make sure it's aligned with our needs. Trustworthy. Whose needs yeah, exactly. Is the question. Exactly. Who's, yes. who's the hour there? Trustworthy. Again, you know, a little bit anthropomorphizing, but okay. And then the last one is loyal. <laughs> like, what do you think you're creating? And it's all from this imagined future of people are going to merge with machines and then we are somehow going to colonize the galaxy and lived in uploaded simulations across all these different solar systems. And every time I hear that part, I think these people have never worked in IT support. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. Can you imagine the complaints? Yeah. And and the other factor in there that I'm sure Emil Torres and Timit have touched on as well is the pro-natalism movement, which seems to be the cherry on the cake in all of this. And Elon is you know, very involved in this. And for anyone wanting to know how all of this connects, I've also written a bit about it and I'll put my Substack post on it in the show notes because it is interesting how the it all segues. And Elon seems to be at the hub of all of these things, you know, very engaged in separating himself from the human race in as many ways as possible, which, you know, and and using eugenics, as you say, that's probably for a bigger, longer conversation, but I hope that it, it gets people alert to some of the themes that we should be alive to as this debate rolls out. And I've got to confess, Emily, that, you know, I've been, you know, exploring this over almost two years, these various themes. I've had some of the big voices, you know, in long-termism, in effective altruism, in transhumanism, on this podcast. And I've had to ask questions. I didn't really feel I was getting answers for them, but I got, I drank the Kool-Aid for a long time because I, I, I was trying to see the good in it where they were, you know, and I didn't get past the wrapping, or at least I couldn't really understand the substance when they were explaining it. I think this discussion does, or at least it gives people a little bit of an insight into into some of those deeper layers, what is underneath the wrapping. Emily, thank you so much for this conversation. It is a lot. It's a lot to take in, but you have got us thinking, and I think that's the most important thing at this time in history. My my pleasure. And, you know, I'm, I'm... I understand how some of this stuff can be appealing at first glance, both, you know, appealing to be afraid of, you know, this sentient AI that's going to take over the world and also the the sort of sales pitch of effective altruism is appealing. And so I think it's really valuable to, if you've felt that pull, but been able to resist it, then help bring your audience along and say, actually, this is the bigger picture we need to look to take those, you know, really altruistic urges of wanting to help other people in the world and, you know, focus them on sources of information that are really grounded in the experiences of the people who, you know, deserve not just help, but deserve the resources to set their own future, deserve the resources to be part of this conversation. And I I just want to quote something from our response to the pause letter, where we say, while we agree that, quote, such decisions must not be delegated to unelected tech leaders, we also note that such decisions should not be up to the academics experiencing an AI summer who are largely financially beholden to Silicon Valley. Those most impacted by AI systems, the immigrants subjected to digital border walls, the women being forced to wear specific clothing, the workers experiencing PTSD while filtering outputs of generated systems, the artists seeing their work stolen for corporate profit, and the gig workers struggling to pay their bills should have a say in this conversation. It's a really good point. I think this is a $16 trillion industry. PricewaterhouseCoopers has given that estimation. And of course, that means there are companies that can pay academics, certain scientists, even ethicists to do their sugar coating for them. It does mean that the alternate voices, you know, ethicists such as yourself, but also the workers are going to fight. They're going to have to fight to be heard. And and yeah, I've probably just raised another concern in all of this <laughs> as, as we wrap up. A lot of questions that are left unanswered a very important conversation to have right now. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. As I confessed to Emily, I drank the tech bro Kool-Aid somewhat for some time. 
Now, I don't regret interviewing the various voices in long-termism, Holden Konofsky, in effective altruism, William McCaskill at Oxford, and in transhumanism, Elise Bowen from Cambridge. They remain important conversations to have, and I do, in the podcast conversations, challenge all of these guests on various ethical implications, which struck me at the time. As many of you who follow my rants on this stuff on Substack know, I've been increasingly concerned, however, about the motives of the people at the helm of these movements. It's hard to fathom, as I said earlier, but the nefarious driving factor behind a lot of it is in fact eugenics, as Emily says, along with entrenched biases already rampant in our culture. I don't think the people I interviewed are consciously engaged in the worst of these practices. I actually think they're genuinely concerned about the fate of humanity and believe that they're doing good work. But their humanity, their us, is very particular. It's possibly the humanity that they see from their rarefied tech and academic bubbles. It's also possibly the humanity that is online that they're seeing, which is rich white guys, as well as the extremists who inhabit all the dark corners of the web, so neo-Nazis, conspiracy theorists, narcissists and the rest. Tech bubbles necessarily create an us and them, and as the world presents as more unstable, like all of us, these tech people will want to preserve their us. The problem is, in doing so, via what they're building and creating, they are dictating the future for, well, the rest of us, while using our content, our IP, our fears and biases. Now, this AI might present as a huge existential risk. It may play out that way, and that's, that's grim. But the more likely scenario is that the current biases, the inequalities, the climate implications, which we only touched on, that make things miserable and wrong as we exist in the world today, will be enhanced exponentially. With climate existential risk, I often say it's not that we're going to be burnt to a crisp per se. Our destruction will come about via mass civil unrest as water and food resources become scarce. That's what will bring us down. With AI, it might not be that we're destroyed by a predictive language model, but that the blurring of the bright line, as Emily and others call it, could. That is, when developers intentionally create technology that makes it hard for us to know when we're dealing with a robot and when we're dealing with a human. The implications for society, you can see, are tremendous. The downfall in this case would be destruction by crazed moral bamboozlement and despair. Now, laws do exist to ensure that this doesn't have to happen. But at the moment, legislators are being distracted by the tech bro hype. Hopefully, when the novelty wears off, they'll rein things in. This is a conversation that is going to have to keep going and going. Um, please send me through any suggestions for further guests who are speaking in this space. And we'll keep trying to keep things real. Anyway, stay wild and I'll speak to you next week.